Section 16 of The Beginning of the Middle Ages by Richard William Church. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 7 The Carolingians, Charles the Great, Part 3. Charles, like his father Pippin, was too much of a statesman to be indifferent to the good and evil in the church and to the great and increasing place which it occupied in the growing society of the new nations. The Irish and English missionaries were pioneers of frank influence in central Germany, in some cases its forlorn hope. They were instruments of keener temper than the sword for the permanent conquest of barbarism. Both for this reason and from a genuine sympathy for their dauntless courage and severe and thoroughgoing religion, they were warmly encouraged by the new Frank kings. On the other hand, the disorder in the church invited from so strong a ruler as Charles the most uncompromising policy of interference and correction. His ecclesiastical administration was unswerving in purpose and absolute in its claims. Never in modern Europe has the union of church and state exhibited in the supremacy of the king been carried to so high a point. The Pope was there recognized, doubtless, as the highest religious authority. He sanctioned and consecrated Charles's power. But the Pope was too completely dependent for his Italian dominions on his alliance with the Franks to venture seriously to thwart his protector. In the Capitularies we find laws on ecclesiastical and spiritual matters placed exactly on the same footing as the strictly political and civil laws. The rebellious Saxons were baptized as a proof of their submission to the king, just as in later times the other sacrament has been used as a test of loyalty to government, and in their case, to depart from the religion of their conquerors was punished with death as if it were treason. Bishops and abbots were peremptorily recalled to their duties. They were forbidden to ride forth to the wars, carry arms and shed blood, and to live as laymen. The king's interference extended to matters strictly belonging to their province. By his own authority, he altered, corrected, and, as he believed, reformed and improved the offices of the church. In the controversies of the day, he formed his opinion and ruled the conclusions of councils, cautiously indeed and with ecclesiastical learning to back him, but by authority of his own. In the question about images, which was so complicated by political difficulties and had so much to do with finally separating the Greek and Latin churches, he took his part, the part, it must be said, of moderation and sobriety. He rejected a council claiming to be ecumenical, Nicaea 2, 787, and opposed the Pope who had accepted it, while he boldly attempted in a frank council of his own, Frankfurt, 792, and by the pen of his scholars and divines, to fix the opinion and usage of the Western Church. The most unceremonious proclamations of strict and unsparing discipline were addressed to the bishops, and articles of inquiry were sent about, detailed and minute, as to their knowledge of the elements of religion, the morality of their lives, their diligence in preaching, their capacity and that of their clergy to perform the offices of religion. 
They are to be asked, he says, in one of these visitation circulars, and the question is to be driven home. What is the meaning of the apostles saying, Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, and to whom do the words apply? Charles's idea of his office as king was deepened and enlarged when he became emperor. He then rose from being the king of the Franks and Lombards to what the world of this day and after it the Middle Ages supposed to be the unique and transcendent supremacy inherited from Caesar Augustus. As emperor of the Romans, he claimed to govern the Roman world and all persons and things in it. As emperor, he claimed the pope himself as his subject. The pope was his father and guide in religion and governed the church by power not derived from man and according to a legislation of its own, yet subject to his own visitatorial control. At the pope's hands he received his own imperial crown and anointing. But the election of the pope required the emperor's confirmation. The pope, like everyone else, had to take the oath of fidelity to the emperor. The Pope went through the ceremony, as it is expressed in unsuspicious contemporary language, of adoring him at his coronation, after the custom of the emperors of old. Pope Leo III pleaded before him, and Charles, in bidding his envoys exhort the Pope to live honestly, to observe the canons, and to avoid simony, used the same force and freedom with which he exhorted his bishops. Charles's claim to interfere in religious matters, which he had put high as king of the Franks and Lombards, was sensibly raised, both in extent and peremptoriness, when he became emperor. He conceived, and his age with him, that he had received from God, together with the inheritance of the Caesars, the duty and office of the Jewish kings, not only of protecting the church of God, but of purifying it from evil, and making everyone in it, from the highest to the lowest, do his duty and submit to the imperial authority and rebuke. This broad claim to superintend and regulate the policy, the government, the practice, and even the belief of the church, with which the East had been long familiar, was new among the Teutonic rulers of the West. In Charles appeared for the first time realized and complete, the medieval idea of the Roman Empire. According to this idea, the unity of the Christian Empire reflected the unity of the Christian Church, and the Empire had its supreme head, Caesar Augustus, as the Church had the successor and representative of St. Peter. In Charles's interpretation of the idea, the ultimate control of this twofold realm rested with the divinely appointed Caesar, where there was a conflict of judgment, it was for his authority to prevail. The revival of the empire was the Pope's doing, and for a long time the Pope sought in vain to undo what in a time of need they had too hastily sanctioned, but to undo was beyond their power. Men took different sides in the great question which arose out of the idea of the empire, but the idea had struck deep root, it was the idea at once of Frederick II and Dante, of Gregory VII and Boniface VIII. The precedent set by Charles and the fierce debates arising out of it affected the whole history of the Middle Ages and even of the centuries which followed the Reformation. 
nor is its eventful significance exhausted yet. In the great conflicts between church and state, both parties have sought arguments from it. The governments of Europe have found in it an armory of precedents to limit or to extinguish the liberties of the church, while in the origin and incidents of the revived empire, and in the new place of the papacy which followed on this revival, the champions of the Pope have seen proofs of the theory which made him the master of kings and laws. Charles was keenly alive to the depressed state of knowledge and of general cultivation in his age, and to the contrast in regard to literature and theology between his own times and the great days before him. Early in his reign he collected about him in his palace the best scholars he could attract, and made them his familiar friends. The most considerable of them was, like the great German missionary of the previous generation Boniface, an Englishman. Alcuin came over from the school of York in 782, and remained, with a short interval, on the continent till his death in 804. By such help Charles tried to improve his own knowledge, and to raise the standard of acquirement round him. Records of the conversations and discussions which went on between the king and his palace school have been preserved in Alcuin's writings. They show the almost childish confusions and affectations of reviving knowledge, but they also show the manly interest felt in the task of inquiry and self-improvement. The king and his companions furnished themselves with names, partly from the Bible, partly from Latin literature. Charles was David and there was a Nathaniel and a Basalio. Alcuin was Flaccus Albinus, with a Homer, a Mopsus, a Flavius Demoidus, and for the ladies of the palace, the sisters and daughters of Charles, there were the names of Lucia, Columba, Delia, Eulalia. They employed their mother wit and their curiosity on such learning as was within their reach, relating to the processes of thought and the powers of speech, the laws of numbers and sound, the motions of the heavenly bodies, and they called it logic, grammar, rhetoric, arithmetic, music, and astronomy. Charles learned to speak Latin with facility, and he understood better than he spoke Greek. In his native Frankish German, he was a vigorous and impressive speaker, and the splendor and usefulness of Latin did not shake his allegiance to his mother tongue. He was passionately fond of the old German songs and lays. He attempted a German grammar, which means probably that, like Otfrid, the translator of the Gospels in the next generation, he attempted the then hopeless task of grasping under rules like those of Latin, the varying spoken dialects of his kingdom. He tried late in life, but without success, to acquire what was then the professional art of writing. He was a severe critic of the reading and singing in his chapel. It was his custom to be read to at meals, and his favorite book was St. Augustine's City of God, which, with its grand sweeping generalizations and its religious sense of the presence of God in the history and development of mankind, answered to his own lofty view of the work to which he had been called. In promoting the improvement of learning, Charles showed the same eagerness of person as he did in politics or war or hunting. Utterly disregardful of trouble, and untiring in what he did himself, 
he called on his bishops and abbots both to learn themselves and to enforce learning among their subordinates. Ordinances were issued calling for schools to be set up in the great seas and monasteries. They arose or were quickened into activity where already founded, and they produced their fruits in the next generation, and kept hope alive amid great disasters. Colonies were sent from the schools and monasteries of Gaul into Germany. Thus New Corbeil in the conquered Saxon land was founded by converted Saxons who had been trained at Corbeil on the Somme. At Osnabrück, in view of greater intercourse with Constantinople, Greek was specially ordered to be taught. The increasing list of learned names which began to appear from this century, almost all of them pupils of the new German schools, shows that Charles's efforts were not altogether in vain. But it was easier to command and even show the way than to be obeyed, and even to be obeyed than to alter the inherited conditions of his age. Yet Charles was as practical as he was enthusiastic and resolute. In this, as in other things, the wants of men and the necessity of supplying them were insisted upon by the master spirit of the time with such manifest truth and reason, that though the change was imperceptible and was thwarted by countless adverse influences, a great change had really set in. And encouragement was given to those who, in those wild and perplexed times, believed that men were meant for something better and higher than a life of fighting, of personal rivalries, and of coarse enjoyment. Charles's great qualities were alloyed with great faults. With the excellences of a strong nature, he had the failings and self-delusions of the strong. Great as he was, both in what he aimed at and in what he accomplished, he could not be above his age. He had the rudeness of a barbarian endeavoring to rise above barbarism. Rude, as Peter the Great in like circumstances was rude. Yet Charles's was the rudeness of a larger and more genial nature and of a nobler ambition. But Charles was one of those who think they know enough and have strength enough to mold the world at their will. With strong affections and wide sympathies, he was imperious and masterful. He saw no limits in his power to correct and mend, and no limits in his right to exercise it. And his two ambitious and sometimes unscrupulous attempts sowed the seeds of mischief to come. Clement and placable as he was in peace, his wars were ferocious, and his policy after conquest unsparing. Yet it was the ferocity which often since his time has been judged the only weapon to extinguish obstinate and dangerous resistance. He was in earnest in his religion, and there was much in it, not only of earnestness, but of intelligence. But it was not complete or deep enough to exclude that waywardness and inconsistency of moral principle and that incapacity to control passion which belonged to the time. We do not hear of the foul murders and treasons of the Merovingian times, but his court was full of the gross licentiousness of the period. He was not superior to it himself. There were many evil stories about him. And tenderly attached as he was to his children, he was not happy in their training and fortunes. The Frank kingdom which Charles had received from his father included Gaul from the Loire to the Rhine, 
with an ill-established sovereignty over the German tribes between the Rhine, the Elbe, and the Upper Danube, and over the impatient Latinized population of Aquitaine. During the forty-seven years of Charles's reign, it had grown into a resemblance of the dominion of the Caesars. When Charles died, its borders were the Ebro in Spain, the Elbe in Germany, or beyond the Elbe, the Eider and the Bavarian Enns, if not the Hungarian Teis to the southeast. All of what is now Germany west of the Bohemian Mountains not merely acknowledged in him an overlord, but was really one to his rule. He secured what his father had only fought to secure, the submission of Latin Aquitaine, and the submission, at last complete and sincere, of the stout-hearted and obstinate Saxons. There had been one independent Christian kingdom on the mainland of the West, that of the Lombards at Pavia. It had disappeared. He had wrested from them all Italy, which was beginning to be called by their name from the Alps to Calabria, and the king of the Franks preserved the memory of his conquest by adding to his title that of king of the Lombards. His more indefinite claims to sovereignty or tribute extended beyond these limits, to Corsica and perhaps Sardinia, to the lands between the Danube and the head of the Adriatic, to the barbarous tribes of Slavs eastward of his proper border as far as the Vistula, from the ocean to the mountains of the Bohemians and the plains of Hungary and Poland, from the Baltic till he met the Arabs in Spain, the Greeks in Calabria, Sicily, and Dalmatia, the continental Europe of that time owned his sway and formed his empire. It seemed to be the center of all authority, the bond of union among the nations. Charles was one of those men who in person and outward bearing answer to their place. Tall, robust, well-proportioned in body, with great strength and activity, simple in dress, bright and keen-eyed, clear but shrill in voice, commanding in feature, hale in his old age, he lived with unbroken health till his last few years, greatly despising physicians and remedies. He was a great eater but sparing of wine, and relied on starvation as his only medicine. He was a great rider and swimmer, passionately fond of bathing, and delighting in the hot springs and pools of his favorite Aachen. To the very last he was a mighty and untiring hunter. After an autumn spent in violent exercise, the winter of 813-14 to 14 was at length too much for him. Fever and pleurisy attacked him, and he would only meet them by starving himself. On the morning of January 28, 814, he died. He was buried the same day in the stately basilica which he had built hard by his palace at Aachen or Aix-la-Chapelle, and adorned with marbles brought from Rome and Ravenna. He was laid in the tomb which he had made for himself. On the gilded arch beneath which he lay was his effigy and the inscription, Under this tomb is laid the body of Charles, great and orthodox emperor, who nobly enlarged the kingdom of the Franks and for forty-seven years reigned prosperously. He died being seventy years old in the year of our Lord, 814, the seventh indiction, the fifth day before the Calends of February. There in the vault below he was left, sitting as in life on a marble throne, dressed in his imperial robes, with his horn, his sword, and his book of the Gospels on his knee, 
and there, says the legend, in the last years of the tenth century, he was found by Otto III, who ventured to open the tomb, and who beheld the undecayed form of the great emperor of the Franks. For the first time since the fall of the Roman Empire in the West, a king, an emperor, had arisen in the new nations to rule with glory, a conqueror, a legislator, a founder of social order, a restorer of religion. His unbroken success, his wide dominion, his consecrated authority, his fame spread to the farthest bounds of the world, recalled the great kings of the Bible, the great Caesars of Rome. What made him so great was that his aim was not only to conquer and overthrow and enjoy, but that he labored so long and so resolutely with deliberate purpose for the benefit of men. It was all the more wonderful and impressive from the disorder which had been before, from the disorder which for a long time followed. His reign was a romantic episode, interposed in the midst of what seemed normal and irremediable anarchy. The unique splendor of his reign, which even we with our cooler judgments see to have been so remarkable, naturally dazzled the imaginations of his age. The haze of legend and poetry soon enveloped his image in the memory of the nations. The great German king in Caesar was transformed into a Latin hero of romance, the theme of the Norman Jean de Roland, and of the Italian poets of the court of Ferrara, Boiardo and Ariosto. More strangely still, as the great champion and legislator and benefactor of the church, he grew, though personally so lax in his rules of life, into the reputation of a saint. He was never formally canonized, but his name and his doings appear in the catalogue of the saints. His altar was frequent at one time in Germany and the Low Countries, and to this day his title to saintship is still acknowledged by altar and image and festival in the churches of the Lower Valais. His glory was the prelude to strange reverses in the fortunes of his posterity. Strong as he was, the times were yet stronger, and the children of Charles proved even less worthy of their origin than the children of Clovis, for they started from a higher point, and they sank at last almost as low as the Merovingians. End of section 16